A quantum computing physicist walks into a bar and the bartender asks, what can I get you? The physicist thinks for a moment and then asks, how about a Schrodinger's cat? Somewhat confused, but not deterred, the bartender says, not sure if I've heard of that one before, what's in it? And the physicist replies, I'm not certain, but I'll know it when I see it. Okay, that's all I got. At least in the narrow band of humor related to quantum computing. But if you want to get serious about this, then you have walked into the right place. Although AI technology may be all the rage at this very moment, the fact is that quantum computing, with its potential for capacities that are exponential to those we have today, is on the near horizon, and this has serious implications for data that we have locked away with the expectation of keeping it locked away. This is the Talus Security Sessions podcast. To discuss this in greater and somewhat more ominous detail, it is my pleasure to be joined by Jonna Till-Johnson, CEO of Nemertis Research, as well as Bob Burns, Chief Product Security Officer at Talus, and also the source of this episode's opening joke. Jonna and Bob are highly regarded experts in their fields, and both are extremely well-spoken, so let's learn a little bit more about each of them before we dive into the portent that is quantum computing, so that we all get a chance to know it when we see it. Jonna, would you like to lead us off? Absolutely, Steve. Uh, I'm Jonna Johnson. I'm the CEO of Nomertis, which I founded over 20 years ago. We specialize in looking at the, the business and operational impact of emerging technology. And relevant to this particular episode of the podcast, very specifically, one, two of the areas we focus on are cybersecurity and quantum computing, uh, which both of which come from my background directly. Before I started the company, I was chief technology officer for a large consulting and engineering firm. And I started my, my educational career in as a quantum physicist. I was actually in a PhD program for quantum physics and dropped out because I hate academia, but that's a long story. And my working career started actually in cybersecurity. I was um, writing embedded systems for banks. And Bob, what's your story? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll give you a little background. So I'm the uh, Chief uh, Product Security Officer for Talus uh, Cloud Protection and Licensing, um, which is a division of Talus that focuses very much on uh, data security uh, and cryptography and data protection. Um, so me and uh, me and my teams look after uh, our product security, of course, uh, also cloud security, compliance. Um, but relevant to today's talk uh, and relevant to my background is uh, I have uh, done, a, I come from a history of doing software development, specifically in the crypto crypto cryptography arena, um, and uh, spent a lot of time uh, implementing high assurance devices, uh, uh, crypto in both hardware and software, et cetera. Uh, and my focus right now for uh, a lot of what I do for uh, cloud protection and licensing is we're assessing um, the technology that is known as post-quantum cryptography, which is uh, an answer to the threat of a potential uh, quantum computer being able to crack, uh, to crack uh, classic public key cryptography. Um, and so me and my teams, we've been following the standards for, for quite some time. We also do a lot of implementation and benchmarking. Um, so uh, we, we currently are focused on the future 
uh, of uh, post-quantum crypto, uh, as well as the timeline for a potential uh, quantum computer being able to, to make our lives uh, more miserable <laughs> in the not-too-distant future. So much of the writing and discussion about quantum computing paints a picture of an uncontrollable world in which everything we thought was secure no longer is. Are we looking at a security cryptopocalypse here? That's what we're preparing for, right? I mean, it's it's crystal ball time. Um, the science is there. There's a lot of effort. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of energy right now in developing uh, quantum technology. Um, and, and mind you, it's not being developed just because everybody's twisting their little mustaches and want to crack crypto. The, the reality is, is that quantum computing has a lot of promise, right? I mean, it, there's a lot of really good things and a lot of interesting um, problems in humanity that a quantum computer can practically solve uh, once we get there. So, so uh, you know, will it happen? I think it's likely going to happen. The, the issue is, is to what degree and whether or not it will be of the size and of the magnitude magnitude necessary to run Shor's algorithm and, and break uh, public key crypto as we know it. Well, and I think let's let's just articulate for our audience, the it that we're talking about is whether quantum computing will break conventional cryptography by simply, uh, you know, essentially the algorithms that we're talking about rely on the difficulty, but not impossibility of factoring really large prime numbers. And with conventional computing, cracking something like uh, 2048-bit RSA encryption requires something like 300 trillion years. So we can safely say it'll never happen. With quantum, however, that length of time is decreasing to the point where someone could do it reasonably soon in relatively short order, whether that's you know months, weeks, days, hours, or minutes. It doesn't really matter because if it's important enough, somebody will do it and break it. And, you know, just if a hacker has to spend six months crunching through the cryptography that's, you know, protecting the Federal Reserve or whatever, if the, you know, if the outcome is worth it, they're going to do it. So the, so the issue is we know for an absolute fact that should quantum computing get sophisticated enough, it will, in fact, reduce the reduce these problems to something that's solvable within human time and therefore make them useless as, as solid cryptography. Now, when we first spoke on this a couple of weeks ago, Bob, you were saying the kind of like, you don't think this you'll see this in our lifetimes. Do you still feel that way? Is it something that is a theoretical or do you, are you seeing that this may be a, more of a, a serious threat than people are led to believe? Well, I think I, I think from from my perspective, I, I would I would probably recast it as as I'm not learned enough to really know uh, how well the scientists are coming along. Um, however, maybe restated slightly differently, uh, what I do see as an advancement in the industry is I see we uh, they are making a lot more progress on things like quantum annealing and smaller quantum computers. And honestly, my biggest fear is of the unknown. So everybody is currently marching on the prospect that this algorithm that was invented back in the 90s by uh, Mr. Shore uh, was, is going to be the algorithm of choice for factoring large integers. But my concern is, is what happens if we make advancements and we find that quantum computing um, actually can be used as a multi-stage step to break uh, the factoring that doesn't involve Shor's algorithm, right? What if we make incremental improvements or what if we chain multiple results from a, a, a quantum computer that's realizable today? Um, so for me, that's actually the, the threat that keeps me up more at night. Um, and we got a little bit of a preview of it last uh, winter. 
when uh, there was a, a paper that came out of China uh, that talked about the breaking of RSA uh, using a quantum computer. Uh, and it caused quite a scramble and it caused quite a, a panic um, until we sort of dove in and the industry drove in. And what, what we realized is that actually it was chaining together things, but something and a type of an attack that was that was previously um, shown to be not effective. Um, so in large, it wasn't it wasn't the the break that everybody was afraid of. But I think it pulled back the curtain and made us realize is that we don't necessarily have to wait for for a large quantum computer with uh, you know at super cooled strengths at sufficient qubits to run Shor's algorithm. I think really what it is is what don't we know? What are the researchers doing today? What are the the new kids thinking of and and how are they going to cleverly use it and possibly uh, break it in a different way that we weren't anticipating? Which is a great lead-in, Bob. Um, and just before we leave the Chinese break, uh, it was it was at the beginning of the year. Hard hard to believe. It feels like it's yeah. been eight years, but it was at the beginning of the year. And essentially, what they published they they published without stating that they already cracked RSA. But what they do is they reference Shor's algorithm in the abstract and the first paragraph, and then they d dive into the, what I call, nearly identical-sounding Schnorr's algorithm, which has nothing whatsoever to do with anything, shall I say, the price of tea in China. Um, and in, in any event, they demonstrated it, but they kind of essentially, their essential conclusions, if you boil up the entire research paper, which I read, is we didn't crack RSA 2048. We're simply predicting that it will be crackable at some point in the future, but we can't say when, which is exactly what we knew before this paper came out. So it really was a great big ball and nothing. But what you did say, and what I think is important for people listening, is that combinations of attacks can do what one brute force thing can't. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that we had, you know, that we dug into was shortly after that whole fire alarm came out, we found out that the Swedes had in fact managed to crack one of NIST's quantum resistant algorithms um, by, by combining it with AI, which was actually measuring out of band information. In this case, the, the, the AI was looking at the temperature changes, which corresponded with the processing going on inside the machine, used that to correlate with what was going on with, with the quantum computing and, in fact, did manage to effectively break things, which led us to kind of say, uh, you know, as we, we posted to our, to our subscribers, um, you know, th there is a nice write-up. It's not time to panic, but the time is going growing uncomfortably close. And let me put that a little bit in, in perspective. We did a, a research paper a little while ago where we talked about the, the fact that everyone's best guess is that it's probably around a decade away before this cracking will happen. As Bob, as you said, in special cases using combinations for specific algorithms, we're already there, that there's still a spectrum between we've done it once in a very specific case to at the very end of the spectrum, it is widely cracked, but we're getting there fairly quickly. And I would say that that decade is is probably a reasonably conservative guess, but it's I wouldn't want to extend that and say it wouldn't happen in our lifetime or it wouldn't happen for a generation because it's going to happen considerably faster than that. 
Yeah, and I, th- I think that's the hedge we're all trying to make, yeah. right? Is is you right. know we keep you know everybody's guessing, but you know if you go back to to, to Doctor uh, Mosca's algorithm, I think he was the one who originally coined it. You know if you know if if the amount of time it takes to switch to something that's safe, combined with the length of time uh, that you want data to remain safe. Um, that's your that's your queue day, right? You need to right. be able to make the transition in sufficient time that the data you're encrypting today will remain uh, protected. Um, and you know, I, I gave an internal talk about this not too long ago. And and really, the the thing that's challenging is that everybody's data lifetime is different, right? So if I'm if I'm thinking about uh, you know JWT tokens that are being encrypted for authentication and being signed with a public key. The lifetime of that is probably days or weeks. I, I I don't really care. But if I have a code signing key that's good for for fifteen years, or even worse yet, a CA key that's good for twenty years, or or God forbid, think about the the public keys that are used on the blockchain today. You know that you want the information to be valid for perpetuity. Um, you know what is your what is your queue day? I mean, effectively, it's passed depending upon how long that is. So, you know, the industry we're really trying to to pivot and get to a point where we're trying to shorten the implementation time. We're trying to make it uh, we're trying to make it easy enough to switch uh, through crypto agility. Um, but you know, there is no unlike say the year two thousand yeah, right. <laughs> problem, right? You know, we don't have we don't have a calendar, right? We don't have a date, so we're fighting against the uh, the challenges of making change of something that works today under the guise of a potential threat that that may come at some point in the future um, and it's really it's really difficult to make those changes and I, I uh, you know one of the one of the the arbiters of change are governments right is that governments they are meant to to sort of help us not be so human and, and fear change um, and they're starting to make these proclamations about when we want to make that transition. Uh, in fact, right, wrong, or indifferent, uh, the NSA came out with their guidance for the U.S. federal government of when they want um, that transition to post-quantum to happen. And they've already set a deadline of 2025 um, for all signatures of firmware and software to be quantum safe. Um Number one, that's pretty challenging because um, we don't have any. We don't, that's not. I true. was going to say standard. all signature, all yeah. signatures of hardware and software that don't exist yet. But yeah. when they do exist, they'd better be. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I, I mean, we do have one algorithm that the U.S. government, and that's based on hash-based signatures that mm-hmm. have been around since the '80s, and 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 fall outside the the normal integer factorization problem. Um, but still, it comes with its own baggage, and it's not something that's readily supported. So, um, overall, just all that to say is I, I think that uh, I, I think that we are up against a challenge of when and we can sit here and prognosticate and we can even poll um, all of the experts. Um, but ultimately, again, it's it's an unknown. We're fighting an unknown battle, but um, we will reap benefits if we make the transition, even if it doesn't come immediately or come uh, very distant in the future. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to circle back to that because I want to highlight that. Uh, highlight a couple points there, but could you repeat for us what that that algorithm that you said? You know, with the amount of time it takes that I thought was really brilliant, and I think it's a really good rule of thumb for people listening. So, could you repeat that? 
Yeah, I, I believe it's called Mosca's uh, uh, postulate or algorithm. It's actually a, a someone out of um, uh, Ontario um, who's been in the quantum realm for a while, and and basically it's the premise that you're you're if you're looking at a piece of information that you want to remain safe, its Q day is effectively going to be the addition of how long does it take for you to implement something that that will become safe once a quantum computer is invented plus the amount of time you want that data to remain secured. So the idea is, let's say it's on, you know, you, you, the amount of time it takes to implement is time T. All the information you encrypt up until T minus one is going to be using a quantum unsafe algorithm. So if you want that information to remain safe, let's say pick a time for three years, you know, you need to make sure that you have your transition complete sufficiently such that the distance between that last encryption and and T isn't crossed because that's the point at which your data becomes vulnerable, right? So if and you know, it, you know, thinking about it visually, it's hard to do on a podcast, right? But, it's you like know, this <laughs> plus this, yes, yeah. exactly, exactly. But really, the thing I'm afraid of, let's say it's you know Q day, is if I look at all my data and I take the biggest amount of data that I want to keep the longest amount of time, and I predict how long it might take me to make that transition. And my Q day ends up being out here. Um, and let's say the experts say it's 10 years and I'm going to be done in five years. You know, I'm like, hey, this is going to be great. Let's get started. The thing that scares me is someone brings that back to four years or three right. years because of a breakthrough, right? It's not the steady state that is the reason that we want to do this. It's really the worst case scenario. And at the end of the day, we want to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. But we can't tell you what the worst is. Right. Or, well, we can tell you what the worst is. We can't tell you when it will happen. When? That, that's what yes. I meant. Yeah, the, the, yes. the timing. Okay. The, exactly. We can't tell you when the worst could possibly happen. So we have to we have to sort of progress with, with a well, certain amount of urgency, but not in a way that compromises what you're doing to them. And, and listening to that, what, there were a handful of things that flashed into my mind. The first one, uh, you know, the first one was obviously your Q day, if you're listening to this, your Q day is going to be highly dependent on the industry you're in and the nature of the data you have within that industry. Correct. So, you know, PPI maybe has a lifespan of, I don't know, call it seven years. Um, if you are in the defense industry, you may need to keep things safe basically forever. My father was a nuclear subcaptain and he went to his grave keeping certain secrets about the nuclear submarine program that will never come out. You know, so there's, there's like infinite, the lifespan is going to range from infinity over here to, tomorrow. And that's the second thing that popped to mind, which is in the financial services space where all the money is. Sometimes what's interesting is yesterday's news is so worthless that it doesn't really matter. You know, there's an old joke that goes around Wall Street, which is what what happens when you make a prediction that's 100% accurate in every detail, but is off by a year? What's the technical term for that in Wall Street? And the answer is wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong. Like if you get it exactly right. So basically timing is everything. So that's the second thing. And the last thing that leapt to mind when you were sketching out that algorithm is I was just chatting with my niece online this morning. She and her family are going to Europe and she's mad because her mother wants to get to the airport six hours or seven hours before the flight. And she's like, that's a big waste of my time. And I said, well, look at it this way. How much did those tickets cost? It would earn, it would take you whatever it was, 600 days for you to earn that money so a couple extra hours of your time to ensure that you don't miss your flight, probably worth it. 
And she kind of went, you have a point. She's 13. So <laughs> that's kind of the thinking that you're you're suggesting, which is how important not only is the data right now, but how important is it going to be lo- that it stays secret long term? And if the answer is pretty darn important, then yeah, your Q day is sooner than other people's. <laughs> well, the the magic reveal of this of this podcast is that you got through to a thirteen year old. So kudos, yeah, sure. kudos on that one. <laughs> that should that should be the lead. <laughs> well, I did say she's my niece, right? Not my daughter. Um, <laughs> true. That true. that said, I I, I want to pivot to something else, which is you talked about the fact that it's not just cryptography. You know, we're not here all you know twirling our mustaches and giving our evil laugh. Uh, there there are lots and lots of good reasons to deploy quantum computing. What's interesting is they aren't what most people think they are. Because if we we actually did a research paper where we looked at the types of problems that quantum computing is good for versus the types of problems that classical computing is good for. Uh, and it turns out that quantum computing can speed up some of the problems that classical computing can address, peak problems. And these are these are, in computer science terms, a P algorithm is something that can be solved and ver- and the solution can be verified in polynomial time, which is where the P comes from. So the faster it processes, the faster it can solve the problem. Quantum can help here, but it, you know, better advances in classical can do great things. Um, NP is one where once the solution is found, the proof can be verified in polynomial time. And that's the example of RSA encryption. That's where quantum can really do quite a lot. Um, but there are also NP-complete and NP-hard problems, and now you're sort of out into the woods, where it turns out that quantum can assist in some ways in those. But where it get, really starts to shine is in bounded error probability problems. And those can be classified as BPP, B. Uh, bounded error probabilistic polynomial time for classical computers and BQP, which is bounded error quantum polynomial time for quantum computers. Basically, they can solve problems for which the answer isn't the best or the only, but good enough by some consistent definition of good enough. So if you can, if you basically have a problem where, and the example I like to use is policies, policy hardening. Let's say you have any kind of a policy. It can be a technical policy, a cybersecurity policy, or a geopolitical policy. You might want to know the answer. What uh, what are all the possible things I can do that will not result in war with, with this country, for example? That's the kind of thing that even a classical computer with AI can't answer very well. A quantum computer can do quite well because effectively, in layman's terms, it's computing all the possible the outcome of all the possible scenarios at once. What it's not great at is telling you which of those scenarios is the absolute best, perfect optimization. But if you sort of draw a line and say, we don't go to war, anything above we don't go to war is good enough, it can actually do that. So there's a whole category of problems that we don't even try to solve right now because they're too hard, because they involve essentially a a, a technique that means you're you're solving all possible scenarios at once and sort of picking taking cherry picking the ones that come above some definition of good enough and those are all the problems that quantum can solve and once you let your imagination go with that policy hardening is just kind of the tip of the iceberg 
It's kind of like a gigantic freight train coming down the tracks towards us here. Uh, Both good news and bad news. It's coming really fast at us, but maybe carrying lots of nice stuff with it. But let's just look about the fuel. We'll talk about the fuel behind this. I mean, in your newsletter, which, by the way, I have to say is a wonderful and enlightening newsletter. I always look forward to receiving it. One of the things you were talking about with regards to AI specifically was AI is having its Bitcoin moment, which I thought was a great little phrase to describe the power consumption requirements of this kind of high-level computing. Is that something that we need to be looking at in this area too? Is it really um, a power-intensive technology that might have a cost that is larger than people are ready to accept at this moment? Uh, yes. Short, long, long question, short answer. Both AI and quantum share that they can consume enormous amounts of CPU cycles. And I think the, the Bitcoin moment, which by the way, wasn't my, uh, wasn't, I, I didn't invent that one. I stole it from a colleague, although I credited him in the advisory. But uh, the, the whole point is that there's an awful lot of computation intensive work that gets done and the substrate that is required needs, we need to figure out ways to reduce the power or we're going to end up at a point where we literally can't afford the the power to, to do the computation. Yeah. When you say we, there are certain countries that might have greater opportunity for that kind of cheap power, which is uh, the essence of what the mining farms in China was all about, which is simply lots of skilled people and lots of cheap electricity. So is there a geopolitical threat as well we've got to consider as part of the cost of the energy required to do this computing? Uh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's actually an excellent place to way way to think about it. Um, I certainly I don't know that the Chinese have cheap electricity f- for geological reasons, although they might. I'm just not as familiar with China's energy situation uh, as when you said that. I immediately thought of the Nordic countries, who which have things like volcanic energy and most importantly um, water. Uh, the, what are the hydroelectricity? No hydroelectricity and from the you know, from the fjords in Norway. So yes, there are certainly, you know, there are certain countries that are probably going to be advantaged. Oh, all, all the major players like Google have huge processing farms in the Nordic countries for that very reason, that just a physically cooler climate at this moment anyway. Uh, so <laughs> you could throw that part in as well. The, the temporal realities of right now is, oh, oh, you know, is cool countries may not stay cool countries. But again, this is just, is just a fuel element that this is yeah very expensive from a processing and energy standpoint to consume to make this work. So this may be just something to consider as something else that might hold up the speeding freight train coming towards us. Uh, Well, I mean, I I think that always plays into the calculus. Um, But ultimately, I view this as um, it's such a burgeoning industry. Right now, it's it's a race to the finish line. I, I don't think for the people that are investing the kinds of money that they're investing, that power will be a barrier to getting there. I think power consumption will become a very hot topic, no pun intended, um, once uh, once they realize what it's going to take to actually run those competitions and run those those computers. Because again, a breakthrough could result in energy you know, reductions. A breakthrough could be you know, how things are done, you know, whether you can do it at room temperature, whether it has to be super cooled. Um, all of those things are going to play into it. I, I think right now, now, um, they're trying to probe the realms of the possible uh, rather than probe the realms of the efficient. I think most, I think you're correct on most folks. And yeah, uh, it's, that's probably the thing to worry after we worry about the thing we're worrying about right now, uh, which sounds very zen. But uh, as, as my late husband once said, when you're kayaking, Jana, 
don't worry about that wave over there. Worry about this wave right here. <laughs> so, which is kind of what I hear you saying. But uh, I, I will, I do have in front of me a chart from the CTO of AMD who last year published something that essentially showed that the energy consumption due to AI was about to hit the world's energy production. And when I say about to hit, uh, it's on pace to hit sometime between 2030 and 2040. So it's a little farther out than quantum breaks crypto, presumably, but not that much further out. So it is something to be concerned with. That said, I certainly concur, as you said, with the notion that um, there are breakthroughs underway here and people are there are people working on this problem. It's just that a lot of folks have just begun getting their heads around the idea of this wave over here and haven't even thought about that wave over there. And to clarify, I was focusing on the quantum computer, not the traditional computing that's going into AI right now. That's a that's right, a completely right. different beast. Right? right. But both are power intensive. So that's that's the commonality. Yeah, certainly. A lot of people know that they don't know much about this area. They know quantum computing. They know all this stuff is floating around, but it's not their area of expertise. So just to perhaps to elucidate on a, the terminology in this world, uh, would you just simply define for the audience what side channels are in relation to this? Uh, in the field of cryptography, where side channels come in, is that it's not a positive side channel. It's usually very negative because uh, it's the notion that while you're doing something uh, with, an in with secret information and using a secret key, that you're inadvertently leaking information through that side channel. So typically it's through power, like how you're consuming power. Uh, it could be noise. It could be even as simple as the dimming or undimming of an LED on the front of a device that happens to be reacting to power consumption. Um, all of these things, are seen as bad or negative because it it does it leaks information about what you're trying to keep secret. Oh, I was I was just going to say, and that's actually why when we wrote about the um, NIST um, quantum safe cryptographic algorithm, I mentioned the fact that side channel attacks should have occurred to them and didn't. And in fact, what's interesting is last I checked, and I haven't been really keeping up on it, NIST had absolutely nothing to say about the Swedish folks who, who cracked their algorithm because it really is egg on their face. They should have thought about that because it's known in, in cryptography. It's not, you know, it's not something that they thought of that nobody had ever thought of before. So they really should have stopped and asked themselves if that, if that was a possibility. So that's why not to, not to, not to ding NIST. They do a lot of great work, but sometimes you miss a step and they missed a step. Yeah, I think, sorry, I was just going to add to that. I think, uh, you know, using, using your analogy from earlier, I think that most cryptographers kind of see side channel as the, the second wave, right? The third wave, because the, from an algorithm perspective there, it, it's very challenging to design in side channel mitigations. It, you can, um, and it's been done, um, but it's, it's a hard uh, second order problem because a lot of the side channels are physical in nature. The leakage comes through instantiation, not through the actual math that's involved. Um, so, um, 
quite right that uh, as part of the competition, which I followed for a number of years, um, they didn't have side channel as a primary attribute. Um, and I think that's largely because this comes down to implementation challenges. And, and one, of, just as a, as a point, um, in fact, the, the, uh, Talus, uh, the Talus uh, algorithm that we designed, Falcon, in co cooperation with a number of other uh, very large uh, companies, um, was in fact dinged by uh, NIST uh, because uh, in certain implementations it requires uh, a very precise uh, floating point, which is notoriously known to be very difficult to secure from side channels, is that most digital implementations of floating point is known to be uh, non-constant time. So so while this might not have caught the the one of that other one, they they certainly had noted it uh, in, in that instance. So I, I think it's one of those things where we're going to see a lot more side channel analysis now that they have selected uh, component algorithms and their implementations across many, many different different platforms. There's just one further definition I'd love to ask of you before we go into your concluding thoughts. I'd just love to know about store now decrypt later attacks. Is that small fry or is that a big issue with regards to storing storing energy for or data for later times? What's your insight on that? This goes back to Mosca's algorithm, right? It's the it, it's it's the notion that um, there are there are certain entities in the in the world who have the infrastructure and money and time to invest in uh, bulk recording information, and if that information has value uh, that extends beyond when Q day hits then decrypting that information will get them get them value right and it's it's the current sort of buzz phrase and and rightfully so because i think it gets people to think about um, this algorithm well having you think about the algorithm which is if people are storing your information today that's encrypted that you think is perfectly safe at what point in the future uh, if it's decrypted will it lose its value um, and and that's really what this is about and and it's about being able to to to, I think they call it harvest now, decrypt later. Um, a tax is, is all the rage. And I think it is a valid question you should ask because it, it helps you articulate and try to think about the lifespan of your data. How valuable is it? When when will you think it is going to, you know, how long does it need to be? And in, 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 in Jonah's uh, example, is the, you know, the, the NSA data or the nuclear sub, you know, you want that indefinitely until someone declassifies it. Whereas something that was said yesterday in the financial world about how well a company did, three months later, it's stale and it's, it's really unimportant, right? So I, I think that's the that's why that's prevalent now, and I think it's an important. I think it's an important uh, uh, instigator of the right conversations and the right thought process. I, I want to weigh in on that because I, I agree heartily. And in fact, if you're listening to this and we've managed to scare you because we've talked about that freight train that's barreling down on you carrying goodies, but unfortunately you're chained to the tracks. Uh, I think. You know, if you're not a cryptographer and you're not a quantum physicist or a quantum computing specialist, what can you do about this? I think one very meaningful thing you can do is as your organization is going through thinking about data classification, which many of my clients are doing, you might want to add the question when to when you're looking at the data, like what is the lifespan of this data? What do I care if it gets out? Do I care if it gets out a year from now, five years from now, two weeks from now? And I, I think that's a very that's something very tangible that you can be doing today. It will help you on a lot of fronts with current 
current classical approaches to protection. It will help you with things like your DLP, where to where to devote your time and energy with you know data leakage, data loss prevention efforts. So I think it's nice because you were able to sort of high, pick up, focus on something, highlight, focus on something that is something actionable today. Yeah, and I think this that, that highlights, you know, a, a a another tangible side benefit, a good thing that comes out of all of this, and something we frequently, I frequently get questions from from CISOs about is, you know, they want to know what can we do to help them find all of their keys and where they're being used, which implies they don't know that today, which is is very typical. That's not atypical. And then uh, the other thing is, is how do I find and classify all of my data? Which again implies that you know organizations aren't doing that now. And and but answering those two questions are absolutely critical to knowing where your assets are, how valuable they are, and that will effectively make a business more effective by being able to have that insight into their data and and where it's being protected and by how and forming that that perspective and that view of your assets within your, within your group um, can only make you better and more efficient uh, as time goes on. Both of your last sets of commentary would serve as really great concluding commentary if you wanted to, but I do want to give you the chance to wrap up if you'd like to. What's your sort of overarching thoughts you may want to give to your listeners just about weighing this particular thread against all the other ones they've got to face at this moment? What comfort or caution can we deliver to listeners as we conclude? I'll, I'll jump in because the usual response I get when I'm talking to enterprises is something along the lines of, well, quantum hasn't happened yet. We don't have quantum computers, so I'll worry about that when I need to. And I humbly submit that uh, you haven't been paying attention to the news if you're going to make the argument that quantum hasn't happened yet. It did. Uh, in fact, earlier, a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of my friends and colleagues just took took delivery of one of IBM's quantum computers, and they're busily figuring out exactly what they can do with it. This is a at a research institution. This is RPI uh, up in Albany. And uh, I can say this because they issued a press release. Um, and they are far from the only ones. I can give you people in every single industry who are using quantum today. So the idea that it's somewhere off in the future and not worth worrying about is as wrong as the idea that AI was off in the future and not worth worrying about in 2022, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I say, I would say that now, practically speaking, we have so many things to worry about only a limited number of people, depending on the size of your organization. I still think it's important to make sure that your, your emerging technology folks, if you're big enough to have a group or a person who specializes in emerging technology, they should be following the literature in quantum computing. If you need help with that, that's certainly something Nemertes can help you do. That's an area of specialization for us, and we've been assisting clients doing that, and we can become your you know, one-stop shop for everything you need to know in quantum computing, which makes it a lot easier because you don't have to sit there and try to, try to go scan the horizons. But whether you work with us or someone else, you should be staying on top of developments because they will matter during the course of your career more than just your lifetime. Yeah, I think, I think from my perspective, my message would be don't panic. Um, this is, uh, it, it, it's important. Um, it, it, it may be the second wave, um, and you're currently in a different wave that you're navigating right now. Um, however, you know, what we have to realize is that the, the Q day is not fixed and the value of your data is really dependent upon what you work on. 
Um, and the other thing that's slowing us down is you don't want to, there's no advantage to being a first mover in a standardless environment, right? We do need to allow time for the cryptographers and for the mathematicians and for the governments to sort of work on an initial handshake of things that they do agree upon um, so that you can make sure that you can operate in a global economy and, and with your partners in lockstep. You can't, uh, uh, there's very little value right now in being the pioneer, the one who cuts the path um, if you end up having to change everything because standard shift. So um, what I would say is follow it intently, um, make a plan, understand where your data is, understand where your keys are. Um, and as the standards start to develop, work with your vendors, partners, uh, uh, or advanced technology groups, if you're big enough, as, uh, as was stated before, um, to make a plan. Because uh, once that Q day hits, it doesn't matter what your implementation time is or what your data lifetime is. Um, everything that's beyond that line is at risk. Um, so you have to assess that for yourself. Yeah. And I just want to add, I'm talking about quantum in general, not the specific application to cryptography, because I agree with you on the standards for cryptography. Don't go racing off into, you know, the, the unstandard universe. But if you're just looking at quantum computing more broadly, do be aware that there are possible problems that you could be attempting to solve right now that don't require standardization. So just, just to make that clear. Yeah, 100%. I apologize. Yep, that that my focus is definitely on the threat of quantum computing rather than the the benefit. So, as it should be. As it should be, and as expected, an absolutely scintillating and enlightening conversation. Jonna Till Johnson, CEO at Nemertes, and Bob Burns, Chief Product Security Officer at Talus, I thank you both for joining me here on the Talus Security Sessions podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's It's been fun. I always enjoy talking to Bob. Yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm kind of sad it's ending so quickly, but uh, glad to have had the conversation and looking forward to, to continued learning from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and tell a friend, a colleague, a client, or all of them about the Talus Security Sessions podcast. We will be back again soon with another episode and another discussion on topics that you need to know about to successfully carry on in the business of information security. Until then, I'm Steve Prentice. Thanks for listening.